Welcome to The Maker and The Merchant with Fergus Elias and the Isaacs. It's another of the podcasts that nobody wants to see or hear again. Um, this week we're incredibly lucky because this time we're actually joined by someone with significant amount of talent and understanding about the wine industry and um yeah, and, and which makes a nice change. Um, so this week we have Henry Jeffries. Uh, it, interviewed by Lee and I for the first 20 minutes or so. And then, well, frankly, I got bored of listening to Lee's questions. So I threw my headphones across the room. Uh, my microphone stops working. And so there are some strange random silences uh, where I was supposed to be talking, but wasn't. Um, it was fun, wasn't it, Lee? It was a huge amount of fun. Um, and, and yes, there will be, as people listen to this episode, they'll go, oh, why has Henry suddenly started talking about his Mercedes? That's because mm. Ferg asked him about his car, but we lost the recording. So there will be certain elements that maybe don't flow quite as naturally, but due to time constraints and editing, um, you'll just have to live with it. You still get to listen to the awesome Henry Jeffries, and surely that is enough for you. If you want more, what are you doing? I'd have thought so. I mean, he was so kind. Really good sport. Really kind of him to come on our pod and talk to us idiots. Um, And yeah, no, I'm afraid there are chunks that are missing, a bit like the Watergate papers, tapes, tapes, definitely tapes. Um, Sadly, not as salacious. Um, But yeah, no, really thoroughly enjoyable episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. And um, yeah. See you on the flip. Here we go. Over to the two of us and Henry Jeffries. Over to you, Ferg. How are you doing? I'm very good, mate. This is very exciting, isn't it? it it's is. not often that like genuine wine professionals actually want to talk to us, let alone be recorded talking to us. Um, is it? It, it? I mean, people generally want to improve their street credibility, not reduce it significantly in that we are the most successful pod for reduction of street credibility in fact all forms of credibility um i think that's what we do best here at uh, tm and tm mate i think you're too hard on yourself we are big in south korea remember <laughs> it's the the, the have... new market for books on english wine south korea anyway folks so I, I, I i think we should um get straight into some introductions because we have a fabulous guest here who we want to hear yeah, no, this is mainly about him, isn't it? It's all about him. Um, so, tonight, Jilly. Uh, <laughs> tonight, Matthew, delight- I shall be. No, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough, though, isn't it? Uh, tonight, we have the wonderful, fabulous, talented uh, Henry Jeffries in. Um, uh, Henry, you couldn't hello. get him, so you got me instead. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll do it. I'll, Henry, I'll let I'm it just... in, like, raucous applause to make it sound like we're at the Palladium or something. And Henry's right. walking on into this, just and it's just going to be a stream of uninterrupted success. Is anyone here from Headcorn? <laughs> <laughs> have you seen? Have you seen those wine writers they have today? Have you seen them? Yeah, brilliant. Henry, how are you? Thank you for joining us. I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Thank you for having me. You know, I'm. I, I didn't realise that this podcast was was not cool, as the, as the young people say. Um, and I thought I was going to get much much cred for this. Um, my daughter could tell all her friends about it, but um, uh, sorry, bro. Well, not that kind of podcast. Oh. Yeah, we're, we're, I've, we're, I've been misinformed. Clearly, yeah, we're, we're sorry no, to disappoint. To we'll, yeah, we'll get our people to talk to your people um, to talk to Ferg's people um, and, and clear everything up. Um, but of course, you, you're here primarily 
talking about your your brand new book. I was about to hold it up to the camera, realizing that this is an entirely audio experience for our listener. Uh, talking about your book, Minds in a Cold Climate. But I thought before we get into that, the meat and potatoes of, of this episode, um, it'd be nice just to sort of have a, a little elevator pitch about how and where you actually got started in wine and indeed writing, because it's not an obvious path for anybody to take. Where, where did it start for you, Henry? Oh, God. It, it started, um, I was going to say I was born at a very early age. Um, <laughs> it, I, I don't know where it started. My, my, I think... Um, like you, my father was a wine drinker, was interested in wine. He came from a generation where I think it was thought to be something that you should know about, knowing about wine. Not that not that he did know anything, but, you know, it was sort of, it was like books. You know, there were lots of books in the house. There was lots of wine in the house. So it was it was a very kind of normal thing. And, and, and Lee, just like you, I ended up at Oddbins. So I was, you know, moderately interested in wine. I used to drink a lot of Rioja when I was 19 or so at Leeds University. And I kind of thought, you know, I thought of myself as a bit of a cut above the average wine drinker. I, I drank the 399 Rioja, not <laughs> the 299 Blossom Hill. So, you know, I was, Good. I was pretty swanky. Henry. <laughs> What's that? Well, they must have a much higher calibre of students at your university than at mine. I mean, we were having quad bods at that age. I don't, even, I don't even know what that is. What is a quad bod? Uh, a quad bod is four shots of vodka topped up with a WKD. Oh, okay. No, no, we didn't. I, I mean, people were drinking this. We used to, this is getting slightly off topic, but we used to have a thing called cock sock at university, which is not, not as seedy as it sounds. Actually, it was much seedier than it sounds. It was cocktail society. And this wasn't like people oh. sipping daiquiris. It was these plastic bins, which they'd pour like, Aldi discount peach schnapps, vodka, and fruit juice in, and they were tw- it was twenty five p a cup, and you'd just drink yep. them, and then people would be carried out. People would be, you know, just naked. It was just it was honestly. I went once, and even I, and I, I'm pretty seedy, and I was just like, this is fucking horrible. So, uh, am I allowed to swear? Oh, by all means, drop as many bombs as you wish, sir. Okay. Uh, we so, still mark it as clean. Right. I, I, I'm not a big swearer, actually. But anyway, so I, I, I was going to Oppins, drinking my 399 Rioja. I moved beyond the cocksock phase. And I, they just looked like they were having so much fun. I'd never been in a shop. This was the one in Headingley, where they were all just having a laugh. So I just thought, I, I, I finished my degree, English literature, English and classical literature, fucking useless. And I thought, what a, you know, they're having fun in that shop. I'll get a job there. So I got a job there. I was with Obbins for two years, became assistant manager of the Portobello Road branch. And that was my kind of, that was me for life. You know, I was 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 hooked on wine. And even though I left the wine trade, I went to work in, in publishing, I still went to wine tastings. I, you know, I was just reading about wine, reading kind of Jancis Robinson and um, all kinds of other writers, you know, um, Kermit Lynch, you know, all the kind of all those great wine books. And I just was my head was just full of all this sort of wine stuff, but I didn't really have any outlet for it. And then I started. So I started a blog. It was 2010. I think nowadays I would have become an influencer. You know, I would have well, perhaps I don't have the looks to be an influencer, but (laughs) I would have tried to be an influencer. But it was 2010. You didn't have really have much social media. So I started a blog and it kind of accidentally 
became quite successful. And I ended up, um, someone sent it to Rachel Johnson, who was um, at the time the editor of The Lady. And she called me into her office and asked me if I wanted to be their wine writer. And, um, and I didn't really know enough about wine to be a wine columnist. I mean, I really didn't. But I, I sort of did it anyway and, and learned on the job. So I just sort of fell into it. And all the time I was still working in publishing. I was I I did PR for, among others, Russell Brand for his first bookie work, which was Oh yeah. It's quite an experience, as you can imagine. Um, um and eventually I, I, I was doing I was doing lots I was doing lots of writing and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna stop doing publishing and be a full time writer. So that happened in twenty fifteen where I finally gave up my job before they fired me and i've been writing about drink ever since so it's been it's been a great it's been wonderful i've just i mean apart from the terrible money and the sort of you know almost (laughs) being evicted from my flat and you know the the desperation and the kind of worry apart from all that it's been it's been brilliant and total you know i hadn't have any plans i didn't have any career trajectory that i just sort of kind of bounced along and ended up I got some got some lucky breaks and here I am sitting talking to you you all all roads lead to Rome all all wine roads lead to the maker and the merchant podcast apparently I, I think it's a wonderful thing when you you fall into wine most of us in it I think fall into it not really having a career plan or knowing that it, I, I was in wine for about a dozen years before I went oh this is my career now this is this is why it's, it's allowed to be so to fall into it and then you know take that passion enthusiasm and hone it towards the skill set that you you clearly possess but it, it is nice to know that wine writing pays about as much as wine educating or indeed wine making from, from folks I was going to say wine, wine making as well I mean, it, feel, it feels familiar yeah <laughs> i feel um, I picked a more lucrative job but um, too late now i hear banking's nice Apparently yeah. so. Apparently so, because then you could go and you know have your own winery, couldn't you? Um, well, I mean, that's what that's what we all should have done. It should have been out of university, got to work for I don't know Ernst and Young or someone like that, made a packet, retired at thirty-five, bought the vineyard in Sussex, Hampshire, wherever. Corporate gilets, sparkling yes. wine, done, mm. sold. So anyway, yeah. it's, too, it's too late for me now. I've I've just I've become I am a wine writer, and there's there's no there's no nothing else for me to do. Well, all, all I'd say right. there is, you know, you were drinking three ninety nine Rioja. You have a full head of hair, luscious, proud mane. Ferg, who was drinking his quad vods, not a single. It's like the surface of the moon up there, isn't it? Yeah. Ferg? So it's so there looking, are also it's looking a bit a bit yeah. Scarce on top these days. Yeah, the thatch is pretty much gone. Never uh, mind. Never mind. Um, but the, moving on to the meat and potatoes of your wine writer, you've written, you've written um, as our listener will know, you know, various books. <laughs> where was the inception and where was the idea to go, I'm going to write a book about English wine? And how long ago was that? Well, I'd love to say that it, it's been a, a long been a passion of mine to write a book about English <laughs> wine, but, but that would be a lie. Um, I <laughs> didn't know terribly much about English wine. I, I, I'd visited Balfour. I'd, I'd, I'd met Fergus. I'd visited Biddenden, um, and I was, you know, was a moderate fan of English wine. You know, I, 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 I certainly liked some English wines, but if you'd said 
do you want to write a book about sherry or port or something? I would have, you know, probably preferred that. But a um, editor at Atlantic Books phoned me up in 2021 and said, we think you should do a book about English wine. And I, you know, I said, I don't think this is a very good idea. Oz Clark has just done a book about English wine. He is the man. You know, if why would we, why would we need another book about English wine? And he was like, no, 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 we, we we need someone someone young. And I, you know, this was two years ago, so I was I was, I was quite young then, um, <laughs> or, 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 or less less middle aged. And I sort of, you know, I kind of hummed and hummed and hard about it. And I'll be, I'll be completely honest, you know, I wasn't fully sold on the idea. I had this vision of English wine as as I've written recently. The, in fact, as I was just saying to you, that it was all very kind of corporate gilets and someone who had made a packet in the city and was just a bit was a bit bland. You know, not that the wines weren't good, but I just didn't think it would be very much fun. I thought you might as well write a book about accountancy firms or something. Um, and then I I went to a, a lunch put on by um, this man who turns pomace into. Uh, cosmetics and he 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 works with adrian pike um, from westwell and i sat next to adrian pike and i don't don't know if your listeners will know him but i'll describe him to you he's like a huge bear of a man and he's very very softly spoken and he's incredibly rude but in such a softly spoken way that it's very disarming so you don't realize he's been quite so rude until you just go oh i can't believe he just said that but he's not like personally rude he doesn't like call you an idiot but he's just very blunt about his fellow English wine producers. And after about half an hour of listening to him, I was like, there's a lot of stories here. You know, most of them probably won't make it into the book because they're libelous, but there's some really strong stories. And also there's a lot of people who don't like each other either. So I was just like, my kind of eyes lit up and I thought, you know, this is, this isn't a story about, grapes and trellises and global warming and malolactic fermentation and all the boring stuff this is like dallas you know this is howard's way this is you know this is <laughs> kind of big personalities warring with each other um so i just were like yeah i've got to do it um and it was just brilliant researching the book because kind of everybody once you got to know them a bit was just so rude you know i don't mean like unnecessarily rude but i remember you fergus you <laughs> talking about some rival producer whose name i didn't actually put in the book but just saying whenever we made a wine that wasn't very good we said it was like you know <laughs> expletive deletive yeah. um yeah, yeah and it was like that everywhere and i just yeah 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 so the whole book was just a kind of gift um and so far, no one has sent me an angry email saying, I wish you hadn't put that in. But I think you know, I'd be surprised if I don't get one because it was just, you know, it's, it's a lot of a lot of big, big personalities sort of not not always getting on very well. And it's also just such a crazy story, isn't it? Like England, where the wines were literally a joke 30 years ago, now, you know, winning all these awards sort of beating the French, having French people over here making wine, investing millions in vineyards in Kent, Hampshire. It's Californians buying land in Essex. It's just, it's such a bizarre story. So I'm so glad I did it because it just makes you realise that you can't look at things at face value. You've got to look look under the surface. 
the level of disagreement that you that you managed to tap into is, is particularly <laughs> pertinent, and it, it's quite nice to see someone with altitude come in and be like, "Wow, yeah, you don't really like each other that much." Do you? <laughs> but it's it, it's covered in such a wonderful way in the book because you. You, you pick a you, you know every person you write about has their own distinct personality which you get in and you manage to to get across in the book that perhaps these people disagree, but you you do it in such a way that it, nothing comes across of it as aggressive or angry. You just kind of go, oh, that's that person who thinks that, and that's this person who thinks this. How much stuff did you have to leave out? Tons, absolute tons. <laughs> um, mainly your father's stuff, actually. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. <laughs> I don't know if your regular listener knows about your father, but Fergus's father, Owen, is a a sort of pioneer of English wine. And he's a kind of zealot-like figure because he's been, worked at all these places. He's made so many different wines. He's kind of seen everything. And he would just go, yes, yeah, so-and-so is a crook, you know, and just, I'd be like, okay, yeah, no, I mean, literally a crook. And I'd be like, oh, right, okay, well... I won't put that in, you know, just because it would, it would have been too complicated. So there was so much that your father said about the early days of Chapel Down, the various people involved, the investors, the other producers who were part of the ill-fated English wine group. Um, yeah, that so much of that. I'd love to do a sort of director's cut at some point, you know, maybe when I've got a really good lawyer and... Um, and then there was all kinds of stuff about other producers, just which which I was sort of more hearsay than anything. It was just so and so, so and so has had a disagreement with his vineyard manager, and the vineyard managers left because of something, something, something. And I couldn't get any corroboration on it. And I actually thought it's probably not worth trying to pursue that. And then someone might get litigious. Um, mm-hmm. So most of the stories are. Yeah, not yeah. The, the, all the really, really juicy stuff is yeah. It's just in my notepad somewhere. I, I think um, there's a call here for for a late night Hollyoaks sort of version of this somewhere because you, as you read it, you read these certain bits and you go, "There's so much more there I want to explore." But you know, obviously, you can't include. Sorry, Ferg, I cut you off right there. Uh, no, no, you're all good. I was actually going to go with. Did you hear the one about the disgruntled employee who sprayed glyphosate all over someone's vineyard? No. Hmm. Gosh, that's a good one. I can't tell you anything about that, but I can later. <laughs> right? <laughs> wow. God, I, I, I can almost imagine who the producer was now. Uh, no, it's not. It's not who you'd expect. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, there's. I was impressed. Well, yeah, dear they... listener, once uh, once we stop recording, I think we're going to do. We'll, we'll have that conversation, won't we? Off mic. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice deep dive into that one. Uh, <laughs> but I don't want people um, to think that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm negative about the business because I did end up oh, becoming no. very fond of almost everyone I spoke to, almost everyone, with a, with a few exceptions. Um, and, <laughs> you know, generally was very, very impressed with the quality, not, no, not just the quality of the wine, but the sheer, such an overused word, but the sheer diversity. Like, you know, that there were people making really nice, Pinot Noir Precoce in in Norfolk. You know, I just I I don't think I don't think I expected. So that was good to find out. I think the diversity is a really interesting point. You know, at the moment everyone's doing everything. Where do you think? You know, we're, we're all playing and we're all enjoying it. I am. I am. I am 
notorious for playing. Where do you think we'll be ten years down the line? Where do you think what's the what's the trajectory? Where does it when does the playing stop and where does it where do we all settle down? Is it is it English sparkling or is there more? What's your I don't think there's any need take? to settle down, to be honest. I feel like a Good. if you think like in Australia, have they settled down? Or in New Zealand, I suppose New Zealand, they, they did settle down quite a bit and they've now kind of woken up again. But, you know, there's a lot of Sauvignon Blanc over there. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I suppose, and I think, I think that's a mistake. I think, I mean, I think that you, 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 you made a good point there that to, 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 to go kind of, God, I almost said balls deep, but I'm glad I didn't. I did. um, <laughs> well, you to go now. all in with your USP is, is so boring and such a big mistake as, the kind of overplanting in New Zealand showed, or the sort of decline of Australian Chardonnay showed, and I think the, the the strength is in people doing different things. Having said that, I think English Chardonnay has like a, a really really strong future, and I think it's quite an easy sell. Um, and the quality, you know, from from you, Fergus, from people in Essex, is just you know. Incredible. Um, so I think that's a, a really strong one, which which I think stands alongside English sparkling wine as one of those ones which you can just very proudly say it's good. And I think we'll definitely see more of that. But I hope people carry on doing 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 the crazy stuff as well, because it would be a shame if we just will just chardonnay and English sparkling wine. Another one that I, that I sorry, I, I that I sort of I sort of tipped for a return is German blends. I think those sort of you know Huxel, Reber, Reichensteiner, all the kind of mashups. You know um, the what are they called? Um, Davenport. You know he does his Horsmonden <laughs> White, which is a blend of like everything, and he's been doing it since the nineties. Is excellent and. New Hall do some great in Essex. They do some great German ones, and some of the funky producers like uh, Black Book. He does a lovely Muller Turgau Reichenstein, which is just you know really beautiful. It tastes like something from like the Alto Adagi, and I think you know I'd love to see more wines like that. That's uh, sort of my next question was I suppose going to be about um, the biggest surprises because. I love the honesty in the book that it, it it would be easy to write a book about English wine and just talk about all the really good stuff and say everything's brilliant and it all works. But there's certain wines or certain producers where you, you acknowledge, OK, I didn't like everything, not everything worked, but I did like that. Obviously, you don't focus on the negative because it's a positive, but but it's not you're not sort of whitewashing it and going for everything's brilliant. But aside from those ones you've mentioned, is, is there anything that either did make it in or didn't make the, the, the final edit? Were there any wines or producers that really surprised you? Oh, what, what, what ones that really surprised me? I think like a, a lot of the sort of garage producers, they really surprised me that, that, that there were just the levels of professionalism, that, you know, that these were serious winemakers, serious, well-trained winemakers making wine in a garage or, you know, with Chris Wilson under a windmill in in uh, in Cambridge. I think when Chris, Chris Wilson first sent me a bottle of his wine, I, I knew him as a journalist. And I thought, <laughs> journalists making wine, this brings all <laughs> kinds of alarm bells. Um, but they were, and what was, what's great about their wines, sort of Black Book and Gutter and Stars, is they're very kind of classical. They're not 
wild and funky. They're not sort of natural wines. They are very, very, uh, very clean, sort of pure wines. So th- that, those, those really impressed me. I think that, I think those, those were the sort of biggest surprises. I actually didn't visit anyone where I didn't like any of their wines. I was quite, uh, and there's no one I visited who did, who didn't go in the book at all, just because I was quite selective about mm-hmm. who I visited. And if I thought the wines didn't sound very nice, well, I thought I'm not going to, I'm not going to bother visiting. I was going to ask that there must have come a point because there's now so many producers. There must have come a point where you, you know, you're writing and researching where you, where you just have to stop visiting because otherwise this thing would have just become unwieldy, right? Yeah, you know, I definitely did that. And once I'd got enough stories, and enough stories from different types of producers, so, you know, once I got, you know, a few big sparkling winemakers, a few pioneering people, you know, your sort of Bob Lindos and your Julian Barnes and people like that, a few kind of garagistas, a few natural wine producers, um, a f- uh, and then a few, a few other ones. So I, I sort of I had a spreadsheet with all the names in, and then I had like where they fitted in, like you know, City Boy, uh, Maverick, you know that that kind of stuff. <laughs> and once I had enough City Boys, Mavericks, you know, um, that that kind of stuff, then I was like, you know what, I I need to stop. And also, I did something which might not endear me to our our northern cousins. I just went. I'm just going to concentrate on the the area that makes sort of 95% of the wine in England, which is Southern England, um, <laughs> which, you know, I think if I'd had another six months to do the book, I would have, you know, gone up to sort of Lincolnshire and Sh- Shropshire and stuff. But I'd, I sort of pretended the Midlands and the North didn't exist, which is <laughs> pro- 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 probably a bit naughty, but as I wanted to write about the kind of, the wine that most people are going to come across every day. I feel like mm-hmm. that was a sacrifice I was prepared to make. Um, and I didn't do the Southwest in as much detail as I probably should have done as well, just maybe because I live in Kent. <laughs> so... <laughs> it, it does, though, rather tee up a part two quite nicely, give it a few years, a little bit more of effective climate change. And as those producers further north bed in and they start to get slightly better climatic conditions, you can easily go, oh, hang on, this book needs a sequel. Perfect, yeah, well, I'd love thinking. to do that, and I'd love to get get Wales in just because I I like Anchor Hill and I like um, what's that one? White Castle, the White Castle, yeah, Nicola and Ron Merchant. Yeah, I, I think they do some great wines. So I'd love to have um, um, Tim Wildman does a a pet gnat from like North Wales, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd love to have, to have got get those in, but I, you know. Didn't know. And, and also, we we decided to keep it very much about England rather than mm-hmm. Wales as well. Yeah, it becomes something something different. Then we we've talked about sort of you know it, it, it's a book about sort of the personalities really, and through those personalities, I think you convey you know this great narrative, which is the the history of English wine and where it came from, how, where it is now, and and how it's moving forward. Uh, what? changed from your sort of initial inceptions of what this book would be to the finished article um there's a bit in in your acknowledgements where you uh i can't remember what 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 you say exactly but you sort of say oh i I sort of basically changed my mind halfway through writing this and became something else what changed from inception to to final product initially the book was going to be a straight narrative from like julius caesar to mark driver um (laughs) taking in all of 
all of all of England. Mark, Mark, Mark Drivers, the he's the Julius Caesar of the Sussex wine scene. <laughs> he's, he's going to be the next face on our coins, I understand. Anyway, sorry, well, that's a different story. And, and, and so it's going to be a, a sort of history. And then I just kind of thought that that was going to be really hard to do because I'd be jumping around the whole time. So I'd be sort of like, you know, Chapel Down is founded and then something else happens. And then back to, you know, and I just couldn't work out. I realised that sort of the sort of certain producers like Nightimber really needed a sort of chapter to, to, to themselves. Um, and also I wasn't actually very interested in the early days either. And they're sort of, you know, like maybe the Romans had a vineyard in in endorse it you know maybe they didn't and it was just like i don't really care you know it's just it's sort of time team which is you know so boring it's like we've got a muddy <laughs> hole here and here there may have been a latrine and here there may have been a kitchen and it was just sort of too too speculative um so then i thought like i phoned my editor I was like throw it all out the window i'm gonna do a tour to angleterre and i'm gonna get in my car and I'm going to drive around Kent and I'm going to do a bit of nature stuff and just like the rolling hills and, you know, and then you cross into Sussex. And then I sort of realised that that doesn't really work either because, you know, like Sussex isn't that different to Hampshire. Um, and, you know, it's not like Tuscany and Campania or the <laughs> Languedoc and Burgundy, you know, which are very, very different from each other. Southeast England. Worthy, worthy of its own PDO, some would argue. But. You see, maybe I should have stuck with this. You know, this is just me <laughs> showing my showing my ignorance. Um, and also, it was it would have taken so long. I mean, it would have just been, and I've had to be away from my family for a long time. And I just thought, I can't, there's no way I can do that. So then I had the idea of doing a sort of how we got where we're going, how we got where we are, what is going on at the moment? Like basically who hates who? And then, <laughs> and then where are we going? What's, what, what's happening in the future? So it was sort of past, present and future. The past being quite sort of narrative, sort of, you know, in 1733, Dave planted a vineyard here and all the grapes died because it was too cold and blah, 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 blah. And then, and then you get to the sort of closer to the present day and it becomes a bit more fun and you've got, sort of uh, Stephen Skelton. Stephen Skelton, I mean, like, what an absolute gift. He, he doesn't have any... <laughs> he, he, But this is what I love about Stephen. You know, he he divides opinion. Um, and he he's a difficult man. I mean, I don't think anyone would say that... We, 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 I don't think he would ever say that he's not a difficult man. But, he, you know, he's good copy. So as soon as I got closer to the present day, then I was like, you know, this is great. Um, and I had some really lucky, lucky breaks, like... Um, the man from the cosmetics company um, who, who who makes cosmetics with Adrian Bridge called uh, Jérôme Moissan is a, is a Frenchman. But he's the strangest Frenchman in the world because he collects English wine and he lives in lives in Maidstone. He's got loads of old sweet wines that your father made, Fergus. Um, Sandhurst, that, that kind of stuff. Yes, Huxelraber. And, and he collects English wine and he was in touch because he's got loads of old night in, but he's got some 92 Blanc de Blancs. And so he was in touch with the Mosses, the American couple who founded night in, who now live in, lived in Santa Barbara. And I thought it's going to be so hard to track them down. You know, they've totally disappeared. And he goes, Oh, I've got their email. And so he introduced what? us. And I had a few Skype chats with Stuart and Sandy Moss. And then just totally out of the blue, a week later, 
um, Stuart Moss died. You know, he was in his eighties, but it was still like a huge shock. Mm-hmm. And it, and so I got I got a chance to sort of have to get his reminiscences before he died, which was you know just obviously d- d- just so tragic, but but also wonderful for 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 for, for his story as well because he got to tell his story and get it in the book. And I had the feeling that him and Sandy, they sort of missed those old days and they were really excited to reminisce about, you know, the way they transformed English wine. Um, so that was, so it was great. So, so as soon as I started having, getting things like that in the book, I was just like, this is stuff that no one else has got. And then I tracked down Kit Lindlar, who made some of the first wine. He's now a priest in Norfolk. And I, um, there's a sort of Norfolk, sort of slight Norfolk theme going on here. And I sort of chatted with him. And, and again, he just wanted to tell me about the old days and sort of, you know, settle a few scores as well. So as soon as I started getting those people, I realised that my book was going to have a bit more to it than, say, some other books about English wine, because I'd got hold of people that um, got people to tell stories that they'd never told before. Um, so that's when I started having a bit more confidence and what I was doing, um, but it was still it was still pretty hard to put together. But once I got that structure and a few good stories in, then I was like, okay, I'm going to be able to do this now. I take a lot of pictures of cars on Instagram. None of them are mine. I have an old Mercedes. And that's what I visited all the wineries, and I have a 1991 190E, which is the last classic Mercedes before the accountants took over Mercedes. So it's it's this beautiful car. It's a bit rusty. It's done about 140,000 miles. The sunroof, I don't actually open it because if you close it, it sometimes leaks. So I just, um, but I, I love my car. But sadly, uh, all the cars I post on Instagram are just nice ones I've seen. Around, I saw on my travels. They're not, they're not mine. I wish they were. So, what, so when you saw a black Rolls Royce Corniche, you were like, oh, yeah, that's probably Henry's. He works for Master of Malt. They they pay pretty well. <laughs> what's what's the state of the Mercedes now, having had to traverse the way to Peter Hall at Breaky Bottom and back? It's okay. It is making off one of the suspension. I'm not very technical. I think one of the shocks actually might need replacing. But apart from that, it's in it's in really good nick. Um, it's it's basically bulletproof. The they they last for three hundred thousand miles easily. And the only things that ever go wrong are the tidy little things like the seal around the sunroof. And uh, <laughs> but luckily, there's there's loads of people who can fix them, and parts are really easy to get hold of. So they're that actually very uh, very good buy. In fact, do you want to buy it? Three thousand pounds. One careful, few, few careful owners. Modern modern cars are horrible. They just they beep and they're just tinny and they're you know. I think I think the nineties. This is getting off topic was the best moment for cars because they were safe. They had ABS, they had airbags, they had electric windows, but they didn't beep at you. So they were like the last of the last of the great kind of analog cars. And they still had character and personality built into them as well. Now all cars have looked like they've been sort of designed with a set square and there's yeah, no personality. There's no, exactly you that. see an old you see an old classic I'm not into cars, I know nothing about cars. Uh, but where I live, there's a lot of classic car rallies. I stop and I watch all those cars drive by. You just go, wow, look at that. That must be like 50, 60 years old. It's incredible. But talking of, of personality and character, that leads into um, to a, one of my few sort of pre-prepared questions. 
Um, I, I really enjoyed reading in, in your book about Edward Hyams, who isn't someone I'd come across before. And you talked about all the, he was sort of a science fiction writer and, and he was a founder of the Soil Association and did all these really cool things. He seemed to be a really sort of complex and, and eccentric and fascinating character. And actually the kind of person that we still see a lot of in English wine today. Um, even sort of some of those money men, and, and you alluded to it, even some of sort of the, the, you know, the old modern major generals in the 50s that still had their eccentricities. What is it about English wine that attracts those kind of people, do you think? Well, I think two things. First of all, you, even today, you've got to be a bit mad to make wine in England. You know, there must be some days, Fergus, where you go out into a muddy field in Kent and you look up at the grey sky and just think, this isn't that wise, is it? I mean, like, and you think, you know, you because I just, I recently went to uh, Narbonne as a guest of Gerard Bertrand to, you know, to the uh, the Languedoc as a, as a press trip. And it's just like it's schist, it's gnarled old vines, it's sunshine, and it's the Mediterranean. And it's like, this is where the vine is at home. You don't have to do very much. You know, you need to kind of prune it and stuff, but they pretty much just look after themselves. You know, they, 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 if you left them, they would grow wild. If you left a vine in England, it would just get eaten, you know, eaten by mildew and badgers. And, you know, it would just... It would, <laughs> so I think, this, first, first of all that, you've... And as you go further back in time, with the weather getting worse and the less professional structure around, you've got to be really mad, I think. Um, or just, you know, very bloody minded. But also, as you probably both know, that winemakers are always quite difficult people, you know, outside of England. You know, they're, you meet winemakers in, in Lebanon or the south of France. You know, they're often quite strange people you know, with sort of strong <laughs> beliefs about weird stuff like biodynamics and you know they're <laughs> they're not they're not, not wine people are not normal people um and that goes doubly for english wine people so yeah there you go yeah i, I remember meeting bertie eden years ago uh, at an odd bins fair and he was talking about rings of salt and stone circles and i was going i i'm i'm going to go and taste this stuff over there now well, what was interesting is that I didn't meet any true believers in biodynamics in England. Like I went to back to Gerard Bertrand in his uh, winery, one of his wineries um, up, up, up in the hills. The I, I posted on Instagram the tanks that hold the wine are, have these pyramid-shaped covers, and the winemaker was going, "These channels the forces from the cosmos into the wine." And I was like, looked at him like he's joking, isn't he? And I was like, he wasn't joking. I was going, and I was going, how do you know? And he's like, what? And he goes, how do you know? And he goes, well, they channel the forces from the cosmos into the wine. And I just went, okay, but have you like tasted like wine that was stored in normal vats against ones? Have you, you know, do you have any evidence for this channeling? And then I got taken aside by the PR, basically saying you don't express scepticism about you know it was a bit like a bit like i've been at the vatican and said to the pope like oh come on does it is it really the blood of christ you know come on it's just it's just wine isn't it um yeah i think you're looking i think you're thinking of it too literally i think it's it is it, it's the energy you know i don't think it's like like red currants or like blue cheese or something there's there's but most english producers um, were very pragmatic they basically said yeah we do biodynamics 
we spray with this spray because it seems to work. Yeah, um, we do stir in a clockwise direction, but I think that's probably bollocks, but we do it because that's what they <laughs> tell us to do. And most people were very, well, they were quite, you know, we don't really know why it works, but it does seem to, there's something about going through those rituals in a certain way that seems to help. Um, and, but there were, because I wanted to like take the piss out of them for being believers in nonsense. Um, but they generally weren't believers, but they seem to, to find some of the aspects of it useful. Now, recently, and, and again, after you've, you sort of in, in footnotes, you sort of reference this where you've, you've interviewed uh, certain people, Henry, and then you said just, you know, just as we've gone to print, this person's perhaps moved on or gone somewhere else. Uh, we've recently seen actually three really big moves in English wine, right? So Emma Rice, Dermot Suger and Charlie Holland, all all within very, very recent times, uh, leaving, you know, established producers with whom they've worked for a long time. Do you think this is the start of kind of a new movement in English wine? Is it just coincidence? What What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a a similar generation who've got to the same stage and started at roughly the same time. Though I, I think Dermot's probably been around a bit longer, have all sort of got to a certain stage with people they've been with for a long time and just got a, got a, got a bit fed, not, not a little bit fed up, but thought you know I've done everything I can do with the, those people. But I show I, I suppose <laughs> it is a coincidence, but it shows that there are a lot of opportunities that perhaps there weren't before. So, you know, Dermot Sugru has teamed up with Robin Hudson from, from, from the pig. And I think I hope, I was going to say a hotelier getting into wine. When's that, when's that ever going to happen? <laughs> but, uh, but I think, you know, someone like Dermot must've thought I'm at Whiston. This is a great job. I get to make my own wines. I'm, but there's now so many more opportunities or Charlie Holland, who's a Gus born. I, you know, I didn't think anyone, thought he'd ever leave Gusborne. For, for for me, he was Gusborne. An American Californian company investing in wine in Essex, that you know, that's an opportunity he probably thought he couldn't refuse. And you know, Gusborne, I'm not saying he's done everything he can do at Gusborne, because obviously there's but you know, he's achieved a lot, hasn't he? And must have thought this is worth trying. So I suppose it's all it's emblematic of how many opportunities there are that people of this stature are are moving on. If they were leaving the country, I think that would be a worry. You know, if they if they they were all off to France or something. But the fact that they're staying <laughs> and doing or going these, to work in champagne, yeah, going to work in, or, or you know, opening a brewery or something. Um, <laughs> it, I think it's a really positive move that 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 there is somewhere for these big talents to go, and also it means they're moving up and across. So someone else at Gusborne, someone else at at Hattingley um, and at Whiston, it, it gets those jobs. So it's, it, you know, I can't see it as anything but uh, but a really positive thing. I, I equate it a little bit to, um, you know, stuff we saw in South Africa in recent years where you'd have to, the, the one I always think of is Ardy Bardenhorst leaving Rustenburg and again, a really established producer goes off, sets up on his own. And it, it feels like it's echoing that. So I, I agree. I think it's reflecting lots more opportunities than there have ever been before. Um, if we were going to do an 1855 style classification of English wine, who would be the five? And there's no pressure because folks, Fergie might just want to bot your ears from it. Who would be your five first, your five sort of premier crews? Oh, I can't answer this with Fergus in the room. That's 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 not fair. 
That's not. Yeah, you've you've not made the cut, Ferg. I I I I I'm I, I'm going to whatever the Americans say. I'm going to take the fill on that because I can't. I I I I think I think I think sort of Gusborn, Night Timber would be. I mean, I don't even think I could pick five because mm-hmm. you know because you've got. I think you've got your kind of like your grand. You've got Gus Gusborn and Night Timber, which for me are the sort of perhaps not always the best. But they've got everything right, you know. They've got mm-hmm. the, the wines right. They've got the image right. They they can do those prestige cuvées, and people don't laugh. You know, they be like, okay, you know, it's a lot of money, but I'm not I'm not going to argue with the quality. Um, I'd say that they're probably the two out in front. But then you've got, you know, you've got Harrow and Hope, Coates and Seeley. You've got Balfour. You've got all of these other ones who all make really really good wine and sometimes they make absolutely excellent superb wine so i probably put those two there and then ridgeview are in a funny sort of place because they've kind of got the wines but they haven't got the the image you know they haven't got the sort of they haven't got the prestige which i go into a lot of detail in the book about why because i'm you know i think ridgeview are hugely important to the story um but perhaps because they they've never had the investment um, or perhaps it's the sort of natural diffidence of Simon and Tam that they've that they don't they don't have that. Even though I'd say Ridgeview Blanc de Blanc, like the 2015, is one of the best English wines I've ever had. So it's sort of you're just as I'd say that you know that your red you made recently, the Gatehouse Red, was one of the best English reds I've ever had. I thought your your Nanettes your Nat Nanettes range the 2022s were lovely. Like the rosé was just, you know, because I, I, I I've been a bit critical of sort of English rosé. I feel like it's never kind of, because you think England's really good at underwrite Pinot Noir. Surely we could, surely we could make a lot of good rosé. And I feel like people are still getting to grips with it. But I think your 2022 rosé was just absolutely on the nose. Um, and, and a few other, a few other producers, they, they, I think people are finally getting the rosé thing right, which is, which is really nice to see. I suppose there's there's a question of accessibility, which I think your conversation naturally leads to. Um, you know, because of the price, often a still wine would be cheaper than a sparkling, so there might be more accessibility to the regular consumer. And you know, there's been some recent stats over the last few weeks about you know increased plantings, working yields harder, yet potentially decreasing sales. Now, you know, out, outside of people writing fabulous books like this, what can English wine do to sort of further and engage and excite consumers and, and attract new drinkers what, what... yeah i mean i, I suppose i suppose the, the first of all the thing to remember about english wine is it's absolutely tiny it's the production is really really small and there's no the the, the generic marketing budget or even the marketing budget of them is tiny so this is one of those questions that sort of people like diageo and stuff are asking themselves how do we engage new consumers but for most producers they're making wine however many bottles they're making in their vineyard somewhere and working out how to sell them but most of the time they're not really having any problems selling them the the, the the good producers um that might change in a few years time so so i think sort of thinking of it as a, a an industry what can the industry do is perhaps the wrong way of looking at it because it's a very small industry without you know, there is a governing, not a governing body, but there is a, a body, mm-hmm. YGB. How much they can do, 
I don't really know. Um, I mean, there are a lot of wine drinkers in England. Um, so if you can tap into some of those wine drinkers, which, again, I don't see how that is that much of a problem. I suppose it's just a question of getting people to persuading people that they need to spend more than £12 on a bottle. And that, again, that is a bit more of a challenge. It seems like people are already doing quite a good job. How you, how you, I, I don't really know, to be honest, how you <laughs> reach more people. Encourage people to visit you, you know, that's, that, that's a good way to do it. But just, you know, well-branded, well-made quality wines that aren't ridiculously priced. Like, um, I think like Folk Rosé, I thought the new vintage <laughs> of that was lovely. That's selling for £16, £17 pounds a bottle, which people are very happy to spend that on a Provence Rosé. They should be happy to spend that, and the and the quality's there. So I think it's really good products, not overpriced, well packaged, well marketed. You know, I don't think it's. Don't tell me actually how you do that marketing because that's not my area of expertise. But I don't <laughs> think it's. I don't think it's that complicated. No, I, 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 you mentioned the tourism there. I think it's you know make make wines. We know people like so the the rosé conversation is really pertinent because you know, as you said, you know, English England isn't necessarily getting rosé right but we know that's an area consumers will spend the money so you say 17 quid on a bottle of provence rosé is nothing for a consumer you know regardless of the average spend overall they'll spend on that and get visitors to your winery and i think one one of the benefits or one of the good things to come out of lockdown when people couldn't travel abroad was they started visiting english wineries and realizing what was on the doorstep and for me i think that's the most powerful thing entice them in where appropriate not all producers are obviously set up for tourism but get them in, get them seeing what you're doing. And ideally, you know, if you've got some offering there so they can sit down and buy a bottle and have a bite to eat, I, I think that's the next step because that also makes it real for the consumer so they can see it and live it. And that builds so much rather than just splashing money on ads in magazines that maybe people don't read. Um, yeah. But those are those are my thoughts. So we're, we're three, two, there's one. A, there's a little red star above me. All is well with the world. Have we kept back Henry in the room? Then? There we go. Um, Henry, have you been able to identify if your vine that you planted for, for Evermond was in the correct place or did you misplant it? I think I, think I probably misplanted it. I think I, I meant to put my Chardonnay in the ground, <laughs> but I think I put, put it in the Pinot Noir place or or something. But anyway, they, they all they all looked, looked rather pissed off. Um, but I probably won't be invited back, to be honest. Just, was, just was, for, it, was it you <laughs> sort of sending a... Sorry, were you, were you sending a very subtle message of welcome to our country, uh, you, you French people? You're very welcome here, but just remember, we're still in charge. Ultimately, was it was it a subtle, or was it just I'll just plant here because it's pissing down with rain? I'm getting muddy and I, I want to go inside. I, 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 I have no idea. Drink. I just you know I I think I probably had too much complimentary <laughs> Balfour and uh, you know planted my wine <laughs> in the wrong place. Um, were, were you both? Were you both? This is I the like planting of domain Apparently, plant. somebody planted their vine in the site in the wrong place. It may have been me. Vines were planted in the wrong place. It was a long time ago. I'd had a lot of wine. It sounds like it was great. I'm, I'm very excited to see the release of these wines, which obviously, as we record this, are due next year, 2024, in in theory. I think that will be, you know, that should gain some national press traction, shouldn't it? Which is always good for English wine. It's going to be a, it'll be a huge story. And I think it's masterful the way that they've done it. And, you know, no, no disrespect to Pomery, but releasing a wine with 
that's made by Hattingley from bought in fruit is mm-hmm. not, you know, obviously they're good for cash flow, but not great for making a splash. But when Evremont's wines, which is the Tattinger venture, when they hit the market, it's going to be a, a, it'll be a huge story in France, I think, as well. I think, you know, Le Monde and stuff, they'll be, they'll be very keen to try it. So I think, yeah, the fact that they've just waited to do it so it's all their work is, um, you know, is, is very clever. I think it's um, really very exciting. And it's, you know, I think it is ultimately uh, a good thing that we see champagne producers coming over here. Because it, 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 when it first started happening, I was like, oh, you know, we've got to stop comparing ourselves to champagne and all of this. But actually seeing these great houses come over here and go, y- you folks have great land and climate and terroir and all of that. You can make cracking wines here. Actually, that just boosts what what our I say what we do. I don't do anything. What our producers do. I think it's really really exciting. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's going to be a great publicity angle for the paperback. Yes. Yeah. Ah, perfect timing. Look at that. Yeah. Perfect time. Um, I, I was going to ask you. Your, your launch is coming up, but this episode won't be out in time. So, do you want to tell our listener how good the book launch was? Which is not happening until next week, as we record this. Oh, it was it was amazing. Um, yeah, I've, I'm still still recovering from all the uh, all the Balfour rosé that I that I put away at the book launch. Um, I mean, it's amazing yeah. you put away all that rosé when I'm when I served Blanc de Noir as well. I have no oh, idea how that happened. <laughs> Can you? Um, I, I, I was sorry, Henry. After you, sorry. No, I was just going to say I feel I I I I don't even know if I invited you, Lee, which is uh, to the party that we've already had. Um, <laughs> I, I, unfortunately, I I couldn't already not make it because of, because uh, because I'm on holiday that week in the southwest. So I I, oh, I would right. well, well, obviously perfect. love to be. That's there. why you didn't come. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's why I wasn't there. Not because of that. can you? Yeah. Um, I I don't know if if Owen Elias has an invitation, but um. Part of his rider, can you have some bottles of Savor Blanc and Rondo uh, set aside, especially for him, please? That's that's on his red. Like the M&Ms with all the red ones taken out, he wants lots of Savor Blanc and lots of Rondo. Well, I, um, I, I hope he is coming, or I hope he, he already oh. came, because he is on the he is on the list. <laughs> oh, he, he, was, he was there, and he also had a really good time. Yeah, great. Apparently he enjoyed, he enjoyed the Savor Blanc. I, I, I heard he was the, the life and soul of the taxi ride home, apparently. Well, that's that sounds like Dad. Yeah. He did have an altercation with Stephen Skelton, though, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, that that was in the national press, wasn't it? Two English winemakers yeah. stepped outside, and went toe to toe. Actually, uh, that would be great social media content. Do you remember that there was a thing on channel that used to be like celebrity death match or something? Mm. We could do English winemaker death match, but Ooh, without God, the death. Who do, who, obviously. Do you, who do you think the hardest English winemaker is? Who who who's, who's the one who's uh, Who's the not, toughest? He's, he's not an aggressive man, but I wouldn't like a right hook off Dermot Sugru. No, he looks like he could take care of himself, doesn't he? Yeah, I, he, yeah, he, he could smash your face off with one pretty... blow of his paw, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like a Although, Nick fighter. Lane over at Defined, he's quite, he's quite an angry man. Well, he's <laughs> not an angry man. But he, just, he just looks grumpy all the time. <laughs> Well, I, I think um, Patrick McGrath looks like he used to be in the SAS in the 1950s. <laughs> so I reckon, I reckon he could probably kind of like garrot you without you even knowing about it. Has anybody yeah. seen him and Andy McNabb at the same time? No, ex- exactly. <laughs> Tom, Tommy at Langham would just offer you a, a, like to have a drink of Buckfast with him. And then you'd both be so blotted you'd forget what you've fallen out about. 
Oh, Tommy, Tommy was brilliant in the book. Yeah, he was one of the, this is the winemaker at Langham, you know, just yeah. such an interesting person to talk to. And, uh, and and I didn't even mention, we were talking about favourite producers, you know, people who I think, I think Langham are, you know, are up there in the sort of people who make some of the best sparkling wines. Oh, and I, I'm, I'm a, a, a huge fan of, of I, I, I don't claim to know Tommy well, um, really like the guy and, and just the fact that he came into it you know he's white the way he got into wine and he doesn't have a lot of the baggage that many of the people have he's just coming and gone well i think we should do it this way obviously learned a bit from from daniel ham uh and the stuff he's doing and, and he's like what 12 years old or something Frightened. yeah yeah it's really, it's really quite irritating he's got a full head of hair he's 12 years old and and it's and it's just like, oh, that's nice best yeah, winemaker in the world are you that's currently uh, got a, a, a I don't think his leg's broken. He's got a very damaged leg, hasn't he? As, as we record this, um, yes, yeah, um, yeah. Which was possibly as a result of upsetting Dermot Suger, and they got into a fight. I, I don't. Oh, yeah, no, that, that was the fight. That was that the was fight. True. It, it, it's already started. That, you know, the kind of battle of the, the winemakers, yeah. and to- Tommy lost. <laughs> Although, though, when I when I when He's I just during the book, I was um, d- d- when I interviewed Dermot Suger, who who was at the time just about to leave Whiston, and he'd, he'd looked like he'd been in a massive fight. He was, like, covered in bruises and cuts and things like that. But it turned out he'd just come back from his stag do. And I was like, <laughs> wow, that, that was a bit of a stag do, Dermot. He said, oh, no, we went mountain biking, and I fell off. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> did, he, did he look in the mirror at all the cuts and bruises and go, how on earth did that get there? I didn't even fight this morning. <laughs> Except um, it's Irish. I don't know where that place yes, is yes. from. Um, um, I, I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to see that the silly voices are are, are, are allowed in this podcast. Because I did my stupid French accent, which I thought you know might might not go down too well. You've done your Irish accent. So do you, do you do any accents other than Downton Abbey? Uh, no. Well, this this is all I need. This get this is this is a passport to to the world. Just hello. I'm fine. It's like it's like listening to the BBC in the 1940s, isn't it? Um, well, yeah, the, the treble's a bit too low for that. <laughs> anyway, I have to say, you know, we, we've taken up a huge amount of your time, so we'll we'll, we'll draw this to a close. Um, I ordered this off uh, Amazon, or I believe it's, it, and I believe it's the biggest selling book on Amazon, which is incredible given it's, it's only just launched. It's, it's um, the best-selling wine book on Amazon. It, it is literally the best. Yeah, it, it, I'm not even making is. a claim that's not true. Yeah, there yep. it is, exactly. Um, I, I, I read it over the course of a, of a weekend, um, and I have to say, I, I, you know, I'm not just saying it because you're here. I, I genuinely loved it. I think it's, it's, it's definitely the best book on English wine um, that I've read. It, it's in the top five wine books generally. Um and I, I genuinely couldn't put it down. To me, it read like a, a thriller because you've got lovable characters in it, you've got dislikable characters in it. It has suspense, uh, has intrigue, and it even has Tibetan bowls. I mean, it's literally everything in this book, right? I mean, you couldn't well, really ask you. more, could you? And and you managed to get more than a single word out of my father, um, which in itself must have been quite hard work a good test of your of your sort of um interviewing skills i'd I'd have thought yeah it was it was it was it was like he takes a long time to get going but you could tell that there were stories that he wanted to get out um 
Yeah. So it was just a question of just, you know, I think I tried to out silence him. So he'd just go, <laughs> and then I'd go, <laughs> and then he'd just go, ah, I'm going to tell him something. <laughs> <laughs> it was like like the like a reverse interrogation almost, but I think that, that that's what this, this book does so well because it's sort of like part story, part investigative journalism, and it weaves those two things together. So one, it is so easy to read, um, but without dumbing down, there's so much information in here. And what what I loved about it was its accessibility. You know, if you're really into wine as we are. There's so much in here and there's, you know, loads and loads of stuff I didn't know, which is not a high bar because I don't know very much about anything. But if you're if you're just sort of a, a casual wine drinker with a passing interest in English wine, there's nothing in here that prevents you reading. You don't get to any point. And go, I, don't, I don't know what this is. I don't I don't understand this technical stuff. It's all explained. It really is so accessible, but covers a huge wealth of information. I, I do genuinely think it's absolutely fine. I, I'm kind of disappointed that I finished it because I'd love to be able to read it again having not read it but i well, I'll, I'll have to find that experience vicariously through i'm going to go to the publisher now and like <laughs> come on i mean they've started growing in sweden you could go and talk about solaris that's uh that's pretty much all they've got there yeah yeah do you know i had quite a trip nice to sweden. Uh, getting off topic but i actually had a solaris i quite liked the other day uh the uh you know pad the, the chap in padstow what's his name bin, bin two. Oh, he, mike boy yeah, yeah, his still yes. Solaris was actually rather nice. Mm-hmm. That's the yeah, Supernova, the still. That's it. Yeah, yeah, Supernova. Just yes. that's the right way. Really not, yeah, actually, I did the pet nap was quite nice, but the, just the stills Solaris was really, really rather lovely. I think I think he probably does make the best Solaris in the country. Although he's heard that now, and he does listen, so his head swelled <laughs> about six times. But it is, it is genuinely, it's a genuinely good good bottle of solaris you've got um down in devon you've got uh mike dalwood who grows solaris amongst other things and i know his fizz uh if i remember rightly has certainly has a substantial amount of solaris in it um i haven't and it's, it's still blend actually as well i haven't, I haven't tasted for a couple of inches but i always thought they were quite good but they weren't 100 percent solaris um yeah no, nice we, we are contractually obliged to get mike boyne at bin to uh, a reference on every single podcast, and we've done that without actually trying. So thanks, Henry. You've you've, you've ticked our <laughs> tick the box on this what? episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, our check comes in the post once 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 every fortnight. So it's uh, two pounds fifty. That's, that's nice. I was about to say that's what pays for these shirts, but they're not that not, they're not that <laughs> expensive. Um, Henry, absolute thrill to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on on this flim flam podcast that we, we haven't well, established no, I, what I it's really, supposed to be. Really yet. enjoyed it's... it. Thank you so much for having me. And now my street cred is going to be off the chart. Yes, the kids yep. say off, off yep. the Absolutely. chain. Off the chain. You've got some work to do. To really appreciate your time, especially we're, we're recording this on a on a Wednesday evening, so we're eating into you know family and home time. But hugely appreciated. Congratulations on the box, fabulous, and um, hope to see you at an event somewhere soon. And I'll, I'll come and bother you and go. Do you remember me? I, I will definitely remember you. I'll even sign your book. Ah, oh, yes, oh, that was really the, that was the whole reason I suggested we should yeah. get you. I on. mean, um, thank you so much for writing <laughs> that really lovely note in my book at the launch party on Tuesday last. <laughs> so well, no, no problems. I hope you could read it. I was quite yes. drunk on wine then. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Henry, no, thanks thank so, so much. much really appreciate it. Such a pleasure. And see you soon. Bye-bye.
So there we are. Uh, a strong contender for best episode of The Maker and the Merchant, um, although there's not a lot of stiff competition. Uh, again, apologies for the recording issues we had, but hopefully you've managed to get through that episode and broadly make sense of it. A massive thanks to Henry Jeffries for giving up his time. We record in the evening, so he was taking out you know personal time with his family to come and talk to us, a pair of numpties. Hugely appreciated. Look up his book, Vines in a Cold Climate, available in all good book retailers. You can find it on the obvious websites. And um, I'm sure that if you make some kind of animal sacrifice, he'll give you one for free. Although he didn't stipulate that himself. I just made that up. Anyway, thanks for listening. As always, send us your thoughts, opinions, queries across all the forms of social media and email us at themakerandthemerchant at gmail.com. And we will see you soon. Cheers. Ciao.